Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Josh, co-founder of Urban Valor. Welcome to another episode of the Urban Valor podcast. Our guest today is Korean War veteran Victor Real. Victor grew up in Santa Monica, California during the Great Depression. To make money, he worked in the fields picking cotton, grapes, and clearing out walnut fields. When the harvest ended and there was no money to be made, Victor enlisted into the Marine Corps. Towards the beginning of his enlistment, Victor requested to go to aviation school where he finished in the top three of his class. It landed him a job working with President D. Eisenhower to establish what we now know as Marine One, the Presidential Helicopter Service. Additionally, during a pre-flight inspection, Victor witnessed a plane crash into the ocean and ended up rescuing the drowning pilot who was stuck in his harness moments before the plane sunk. If you enjoy this episode, go give us a five-star rating and leave a comment to help support our veterans. The bigger the community, the bigger the impact. If you'd like to contribute your story to Urban Valor or know anyone else who may, reach out to us on Instagram at Urban Valor TV, or you could email us at team at UrbanValor.com. Enjoy the show. My name is Victor Pireal. I go by Vic. And um, my time in the military it goes from November 1953 to November 1959. And um, after I got out, I had two more years of medical reserve time. I came out, uh, yes, a black sergeant, Sergeant E4. Initially, I was uh, designated a supply clerk, and I went to the school after ITR, and uh, my, my, um, my grades were excellent, so they chose to assign me to the, the base clothing store, be responsible for the sale replacement of uniforms mm. to troops. My, um, my origin is from Santa Monica, California. I was born there in 1935. For the first three years, we lived in Santa Monica. Mm-hmm. I have uh, my father and mother and uh, three siblings. Um, for the first three years, everything was pretty well, easy going, but it was depression years, so there were no jobs. There was hardly anything to eat. So we did not uh, enjoy a good American life. My grandmother on my mother's side saw the predicament that we were in, so she invited us to come to Mexico and live with her. But uh, they had places for us to stay, and um, they had their resources to keep us. So we went to Mexico, was there for 12 years. In 1950, I returned to the United States, and um, since I was 15, I couldn't get a job. I didn't. I couldn't go back to school because in Mexico I had finished the elementary classes necessary for Mexico. Only six years, and um, my my time in the United States at that time was pretty tough because no job, no money, no tickets, car wash it. So anyway, the. Uh, the work that I did, this is working the fields from cut, picking cotton to picking grapes to uh, cleaning up um, walnut fields. Anything to do with labor, I did, and it was not fun. So, in now November 1953, after all the harvest is ended, I had no means of making money. 
So uh, I joined the Marines. I saw I saw it in a poster and says, join the Navy and City World. And I said, that's for me. But I made that mistake. I walk into the Marine Corps recruiter and they stagged me. <laughs> I was asking where the Navy recruiter is. So that's how I came about to join the Marines. I was sent to Los Angeles for the preliminaries, all the different tests, the physicals, and everything else. And even though I was only 5'3 and a quarter and 125 pounds, I was in the passive minimum requirements of height and weight. So when we got to boot camp, I had to compete with six foot two or three yeah, giants, all American football stars. And now, quite to boot camp. If they carried any pound pack, I carried any pound pack as well. So I had to work extra hard to keep up. And I was able to succeed because of my handicaps, which mean, you know, the undersides of me. Being a peanut. peanut. Being a peanut. Well, I, 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 had, I had lived through the labor, the manual labor. So I decided I was going to use my brain and start standing harder. So I excelled so well at our boot camp that I was the only Marine to make private first class. Oh, wow. Well, that in 19, uh, this is now 1954, February. Now, they, I was I was promoted to private first class and given a set of dress moves, which is one of the biggest compliments that a Marine can receive. It was a uh, it was a award. An award. Yes. I did presented that to you because you did so well in boot count. Mm-hmm. Wow. So continued to Uncle Nemin as a dirt. Yes, sir. The uh, <clears throat> the work that I did in Camp Penlitter was not glorified in any way. I did have the promotion to corporal because I serviced the, the, the commanding officer of the 1st Division, Victor Kurilak, on the selection of a grenadier jacket for his utilities. Victor Krulak. No, Krulak. just so everybody listening understands, that's the this, father. The father of Chuck Krulak, the commanding, uh, the commanding general. Yes. Wow. He was the CMC. Wow. So... Um, after 22 months, I had an opportunity to apply for overseas duty. So I volunteered to go overseas, and I thought they sent me to Korea, but no, they sent me to Hawaii instead. So my next two years were spent in Kanye Bay, and um, I was the supply sergeant at the time for the whole battalion. And now uh, the reason they didn't send me to Korea is because they wanted me to inventory the supply, the battalion supplies that were coming in from Korea. They were transferring back to, to the States. Or to Hawaii was a state, not non-state at the time. It was a territory. And the inventory that was should be or is the match. So find out that the my counterpart in Korea on the battalion level was selling the stuff on the broad market. And um, 
there was a lots, lots of uh, supplies, lots of uniforms, lots of equipment missing. And um, um, the study that I made um, was enough for me to get promoted to, to a president, to sergeant. So this is like in mid-year, 1955. It just so happened that I was, we were maneuvers. I was seeing a aircraft carrier, the forest hall, and um, they had helicopters on board. So they, um, they used their equipment to move my supplies to shore. We were going to have a landing in the Isle of Kauai, and uh, the, the landing went so well that um, the job cut down in a couple of hours. All of the supplies were on shore. At the end of the day, when everything is done, we picked up all the supplies and brought them back. We started, started putting them away on the warehouses, and uh, we did it all in a couple of hours. So my, I was the company command. I was ship's captain for the battalion on board ship, and uh, the the it was it was a meritorious service that I did. So they made me sergeant E four. Was sergeant was sergeant was E four? Yeah, yeah, because the change the, the grace. Change in 1959. Oh, okay. That's one of the reasons I got out, and I come back to that. Okay. So the uh, the 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 joy that I had watching these helicopters that I asked one of the crew chiefs, "This is what makes a helicopter try." He says, "You want to know? You go to school and learn about it." So after we finished our maneuvers and our uh, operation, we were back to base. I went to the first sergeant and I asked him, this is, what do I have to do to apply for aviation school? He said, well, number one, you got to extend your time. you got to be smart. you got to pass a lot of tests. If you front anyone, they're going to send you right back over here. And you may not have the same job that you have now. So I studied. I worked hard. I excelled. I was accepted to the aviation school, and now at the end of the training for helicopter mechanic, after 13 months of training, they, um, they, they, uh, because I, I was the highest Marine with grades that surpassed everybody else's. Yeah. When you combine both the Marines and the Navy class, it was 72 members. And I was the third highest in his course. Two sailors had better grades than I. So I got a special orders to report to the Commandant of the Marine Corps for further assignment. Wow. So I was I was assigned to to Quantico, Virginia, at HMX-1. That was the uh, place where they were going to establish where I was going to establish a presidential helicopter service. They didn't have the, 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 the presidential helicopter service yet, so you went there to establish it? I, to establish it. Wow. 
So when I got there, they didn't have helicopters, so I had to go to the I had to go to the factory and get the first helicopter into the squadron. So from Connecticut to to Quantico, Virginia, we we flew the first helicopter that was going to be used for the president. Well, because the the helicopter was a war toy, it was something that was prepared for for combat. They uh. It was not a comfortable plate. And the president objected to a lot of things. I was taking notes, and every time he had something he didn't like, I called the factory and said, okay, on the next ship, you're going to have to make these improvements. They have to have uh, uh, carpeting, good seats, many, many of the things that would make the helicopter ride comfortable. Mm-hmm. And now, uh, still, he wasn't happy. But it was better than the previous one. So we took the first one back, made all the upgrades, and then I put the insulation that was thicker to mitigate the, the sound, the noise, and uh, the, the also provided the insulation for temperature because when you're flying up in the air, it gets pretty cold. So without heaters or air conditioning, it was very cold. So that's another thing that we had to do. And yet the president wanted a telephone system that he could use the red line. So we added that to the helicopter and we had to compensate weight. Whenever we added something, we had to take something else out. So essentially we had to remove all the war toys, things that were used for combat purposes. And now we were able to compensate. Otherwise, we have to use less gasoline or less um, personnel to carry. So the per- the presidential helicopter itself became Marine One, where he was more would have been used with less fuel or less people on board. And the people was no choice, so we had to, and getting less gas, we couldn't go too far. So we had to make a compromise, and uh, we reduced the presidential crew from five to three, which is the president, his secretary, and his official uh, attaché, and navy captain. His name was Peterson. So by the time we get the third helicopter, the president was very good and satisfied with all the improvements we made, except for one thing. The window on the sliding door, sitting where he sits as the door closed, that she, he can look out. But when he closes the door, he has to look out the window. We've got a plexiglass panel. He'll bump his head. So I called the factory and I asked him to make a convex, a concave window that the president can turn his head and not bump his head. So since then, all the marine helicopters have bubble windows. Wow. And uh, at the same time, I, I was training other people to become crew chiefs because I was the only one at the time to crew chief the president. And uh, I had no time off. I was working 24-7. I didn't have vacation. I didn't have uh, time off. If we if we come in from a 
hub. After listing the president, we had to come back and take care of all the things that will need to repair it. So if you get to work until 10 o'clock at night, so be it. Next morning, you fall time, you got to get the plane out and be ready by 6 to, to go to Washington and be on standby for the president. He, he needed a helicopter to be at the White House within five minutes. Wow. So we, we uh, stand by at Anacostia. It's our naval base alongside the Anacostia River. And uh, it was ideal because we, we would fly under the um, fly pattern of the uh, initial airport over the Potomac River. We come around to the, uh, to the uh, Washington Monument, make a right turn. And then start dropping down some more. So by the time we pass the Washington Monument on our right, we'll be just about three top height. We came into the White House, landed, and we would get the president to come join up. So that was my uh, my uh, progress. The problem with my progress is that I spent thirteen months in the school which was not time and grade, so I did not qualify for promotion unless I took a staff sergeant test. And since I hadn't had any experience as a staff sergeant, they kept me as a, as a back sergeant, which is the strap on my head. And now, when I got out, the re- one of the reasons I got out and I come back to that, is because the Marine Corps changed the 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 chevrons, the the rack, and they put a, a set of coarse rifles underneath the chevrons. And uh, since I couldn't get the, the the rifles on my rank, I was an acting sergeant. After being three years a sergeant, I'm an acting sergeant and it's a bull. <laughs> So anyway, that was that was pretty much my my Marine Corps experience. There was a lot of wonderful days, and a lot of experiences. And the ex- number one experience was that I created the manuals for the for the crew chiefs that followed me to follow suit, and even today they're still using the same policies. Really? Yes. Wow, that's amazing. So that was my Marine Corps time. Wow, um, that's amazing. So you started, so you built uh, uh, Marine One, the first two. Wow, that's incredible. Um, so you also told, you were telling me a story about um, you were going to get into uh, uh, when General Krulak's father came to order uh, uniform script. Victor Krulak wanted a yeah, fuel jacket for Grenadier, with Grenadier packets at a you know, size 44. And um, I asked him, I said, you really want this size 44? He says, you're going to look like you're wearing the Big Brother's jacket. And he kind of got worked at me for saying that, saying, I don't challenge Colonel on what he's going to wear. But I presented with him a proper size he put it all he liked it, and 
that's what made me. That's what caused my promotion to corporal after nine months in the Marines. He was not confrontational. He was just contributing. I was helping. And uh, he was pleased that uh, his his dignity yeah. remained intact. Wow. My time in the Marine Corps was during the Cold War. So I was both on the closing, closing of the uh, Maria, the Korean War conflict era and the beginning of the Vietnam conflict era. So uh, I had I had like two years service during the Korean period, and I had three years in the conflict of Vietnam. But we done in canoeing Hawaii. We uh, we did maneuvers and changing from the Korean method to a jungle method. So in Hawaii, we had different islands we went to, and some of them were pretty pretty nasty. So uh, the preparation of the of the commands of the of the officers to learn how to how to control the troops in a given environment. So we had. Uh, Quite an experience in Hawaii. Yeah, talk to me about that. Well, for instance, uh, every morning we got up and we, we were not like the Marines are today that they go and do ten miles before breakfast running. All we did was just do our uh, army dosed exercises before before breakfast. We went to breakfast, come back, do our dress up, and we were ready for reformation by eight o'clock. In Hawaii, it was ideal because we did not have extreme weather. Even in the hottest day, it was not as hot as it would have been in 29 pounds. So the, uh, the condition that we had the only problem we had in Hawaii is that whenever we went to one of the islands, we come back all muddy and dirty, red clay in our uniforms. So we used to send all those clothes to the laundry. When we got it back, they were pink. <laughs> so the battalion commander says, we moved my Marines, I learned how to wear pink, so this is the best, get them all brand new uniforms. On, on the burn core nickel. So uh, they, they, we got to keep the pink uniforms for mundane things. Yeah. And uh, another thing, too, that I remember in, in, in the way that I, I, I was a, yeah, a sergeant, so I was a, I was a platoon leader. And... Uh, I had one of my squads participate to the side and drill uh, competition. And we, we asked, you know, the side and drill. And uh, we got, we got a boys from that. So we got meritorious, meritorious service letters in the uh, service record. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, uh, they, they, every every time we used to get something that was worth. Uh, one other thing too is that uh, 
that happened to me after while I was in Quantico is that we had to fly, take a helicopter to um, Florida, McNeil in Tampa Bay. So flying from Quantico to um, to McNeil would have taken three days um, because the helicopter was one of the oldest there was likely to hear about things go wrong and right. So we were approaching a marine base and uh, the New River. And um, I felt the vibration and the door ahead. As a crew chief, you hear the, the emotions of the helicopter. You feel that there's three types of vibration. Thump, thump, thump. That's usually the main rotor. Because thump, 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 thump is a tail rotor. And then the the one that makes your nose tingle is the engine. So just by, by that feel, you, you can tell what to do. Okay. Coming into New River, we landed that now. It was, it was late in the evening. It was still daytime, and I, I started looking for equipment to to do the. Um, I had to number one, re, um, remove the the yolk beans when the grease is packed, because the grease was coming off. So when we took them out, we cleaned them all up, and repacked them with grease, put them back together again, and every time that you take them apart. There are three, three blades of this helicopter. Everybody knows that as H-34, we call it the HUS-1. The disc of the, of the rotor in action is supposed to run on the same path. Well, when you take it apart, you redo it. They're not balanced. So after a while, we're using the bring it up to a takeoff RPM. The 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 blades will be caught, making a cone. At that point is when you have to track them, and when you you have the flag with a piece of cloth or something, then you're gonna turn into the blades. You got something them, and then when you take it out, you check and see with the mark card that you put in the blade tip. So some sometimes it's only half an hour for a quarter of an inch off. So you gotta figure out which is the blade that's gonna be your basis. So you adapt you got controls, school drive school uh, adjusters. You do it again and again and again. Eventually you get all three in the same spot and that's good. That's good. They, they're in, in path, they call it. And because that's what lifts the helicopter, you got to make sure you have the best setup possible. So I did that, but we still have to go another two days into Jacksonville, Florida. So on our way south from from New River to, we were going to stop at the uh, Jackson before now. We had to pull in 
in Manila to Manila Force Base because there was a hurricane coming, and uh, we had to get the helicopter down. Now we didn't have all the equipment to secure the he the helicopter, so if it would have been possible that we lose it with the strong winds. So we we were able to get tied down chains. So we tied down well, and then we folded the blades and dropped them up in canvas. And then we we withstood the uh, the storm. Next morning, early, we get up, we get a breakfast, get the fly line, get started with feel, make sure that the blades are in path. We take off, we fly down to through um, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and then to Florida. Well, we landed in Florida this evening, and we had barracks. We we, we stayed at the um, the uh, temporary uh, housing. So we take us a place to spend the night. Took took some for the um, mess hall to eat. Next morning we got up, got breakfast, went to flight line to pre-fly the, the helicopter. We would check the blades, put sure that they're still empathed. Everything is working well. So that means that I did my job right. Okay, you know, we have flown now close to a thousand miles, and now we only have like 300 miles to go. And uh, as we are doing the pre-fight pre from Jackson, Florida, Florida, we hear a plane coming in for landing. And now uh, I noticed that the helicopter, the, that airplane, it's a trainer, Navy trainer, is coming up to buy too fast. So he's dropping down literally on an angle that's it's not, not right. I said, that guy is going to crash it. So he turned it out. He bows in the concrete, took off again, gave it power. But his problem was that he made a left turn and lost his dynamics, lost his ring, his lift. So he had the plane went directly into the ocean. Oh. So being being that we were ready to take off, I told the pilot this is this is called. So I get in and out. We flew over. So the, the pilot came over the down aircraft that's still floating in the water. And he's splashing water with the prop wash. And the uh, pilot is drowning. I said, say, no, back away, back away. This is, what you want to do is come in with your prop, with your main rotor at an angle so you can slowly come in. The prop wash goes away from the plate. And she said, it appears to me that the the pilot is unable to get out of the heading of the plane. So I says, get, get low enough so I can jump in and, and zoom to the plane. So he literally went about 20 feet, 20, 30 feet above the water. And because of the turbulence and the, the, the helicopter was causing, it was pretty risky. So anyway, I jumped and I swam to the plane. And did the harness of the pilot, put him off, and um, as I put him in the hole, the, now the lifter to the helicopter, and I will hang him onto, onto the roll. 
and the cable the play went down. Oh. So we lifted up, and the guy was so messed up. He was very drunk. Oh, really? Uh-huh. So anyway, we took him to the hospital. We dropped him off. We went through our, to our destination. So but we were, when we, we had a flight from McNeil to Quantico, and um, a couple of weeks later, uh, the information, they called my name forward. So I, I stepped forward from the, the formation, and this is how uh, Saudi Arabia has been uh, recommended for a, um, oh, I don't have it here, for a um, award by the Sikorsky factory. So he's been invited, and he, this is his plan. He loses tickets. He's to go to Connecticut, meet them, Igor Sikorsky, the inventor of the helicopter, and the president of the Sikorsky helicopter company, and his son, and uh, his staff. So he had lunch with them, and uh, Igor was so proud to meet me. I was I was gone because he was he was my one of my heroes. He was one of my go to people for information. You know, we could box information. So he says, you know, and he says the reason I invented the helicopter and the Navy wanted them is because they were invented primarily to save down pilots. And you represent the ultimate in saving this guy's life. So I got a root certificate, and I got a, a, a gold pin with a silver, silver wood. I say a big a gold, big S with a silver wing, and a, and a legend, a blue shield says rescue, and I use that on my own the cabs. Wow! So that was that was another reason that uh, another fun things that we did, you know. You got to do what you got to do. So there was then at the time to do it, so I took care of it. Wow. That's amazing. You saved the guy's life. So I, I believe that uh, they put a, a, a meritorious letter in my, my file, and um, I was I was recommended for uh, not meritorious service, but uh, um, Friday. Something to do with infrared, uh, knowing what job. Yeah. And that, that would have been the medal. Uh, but I got on before the decision was made. Oh, so they were prepping to get to award you a medal, but you got out. Yeah. And I got on because I wanted to go to university. Yeah. Oh, right? To go to college? Yes. Wow. And then, being that that was the time of Korean GI uh, Bill. I only had three years to qualify. I mean, I had to qualify for approval within six months after I got out and only for three years college. So I had a four-year course in engineering in three years. Oh, wow. So, manual labor is not for Victoria. <laughs> we use it. We use the brain, and now I can go into my civilian life. You went to.
Yeah, well, I'm still shocked that that the story that he just told with the, the, the jumping out of this helicopter to save this uh, drowning pilot, like that's the, I, wow, I'm blown away by that. That's amazing. Now, but you know, you there's there's no fear. Yeah, you know what you're gonna do, so you go there and you do anything. Get out of there, right? And now. I never considered the fact that their plane was going to sink. Mm. But luckily, as soon as we lifted up, that's when the plane went up. So, okay, talk to me. What what was it like for you transitioning out of the Marine Corps into the civilian world? Okay, and then in the nutshell, I left the Marine Corps for various reasons, and now uh, they recruited. They wanted to recruit me to stay over. And uh, they promised me flight school to become a pilot of a helicopter and go to the Army base in uh, Georgia and uh, become a warrant officer. So I didn't sell it. I don't know warrant officers, and I know not a, the Marine Corps doesn't have warrant officers anymore. So the, all the pilots in the Army are warrant officers. Mean. And I figured I'm just too good. I know too much about helicopters. These people are going to send me to combat. First of all, the helicopters were not armed. We had no weapons. We had a 45 on our side as as our weapon of defense. Yeah. So, because it was the beginning of uh, Vietnam, uh, many of my friends that went to school with me were coming back futurists. They were they were being killed, and there was no wars. The war didn't begin till 1972. So, when, with with that in mind, my my shipping over to stay in for 20 years was not in my plan. I had made a plan that I was going to get out. I had uh, planned to to go to college. I planned to be an engineer, and all that came to pass because I did it. And when I finished my uh, my three years, I got a diploma that tells me you're an engineer. So I got I applied for a position with an aerospace company. Um, at that time, it was called Hughes Aircraft Company. They told me, so now you got to have some experience before we can consider you as an engineer. I said, so I went to work at a machine shop, a company that manufactures thread, uh, thread, thread, pipe threading machines. And uh, it was interesting, it was good work, but it was nothing creative, nothing. So there was an engineer, an old man working putting together a uh, machine that would be used to be put in the out. Uh, it's a drilling machine with three drills that mounts on the railroad track and it drills three holes to lift it up, turn around, they drill three three holes in the opposite end, and they lift it up, put it on the other side and do the same thing on the opposite side. 
So now they bring another machine that we also invented that had a cattle saw. So we 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 measured the last hole. We got three holes. We measured the last hole and we cut that off. So now we have a, a, a margin of metal. So when they bring the two rails together, they, they buff, they buff, they can see each other, and the holes are over here, the three holes. So then they come in, put the machines, the, the, the bolts, and then they have a big machine that comes in, and rub the, the nuts from the inside. So we did that. We developed that from scratch. It was just an idea that the men, the men say, this is, we can do that. Wow. So they, um, they were to uh, the airline company, I mean, the um, railroad companies, and they all wanted it because they never had anything that was that portable. They had huge heavy equipment. And now, whenever the trains went by, there were some obstacles on the on the on the rails, so they had to get those truck, those trailers that did the work, off the track and by some means, they actually had to lift them up. Wow! For them, bring a cherry picker, pick it up and drop it off. But ours had wheels, and they had a like a wheelbarrow handle. So we used to just lift it up and get it out of the track. I mean, it took maybe four people, five people to push it, but it was a minute and it was out. Wow. So the, the railroad company liked that very well and they got so interested that the, uh, the railroad systems on the tunnels in New York City, they wanted something like that for their, for their tracks. So all of a sudden, our machine is in great demand. We got it. We got a patent on it, and I got my name in it. Wow! So I had a piece of the patent, and uh, I worked there for what two and a half years. And then I, uh, I got a job, an engineering job, at, at a company that was making. Uh, Printing devices for typewriters and for banking machines, and they, you know these these printed devices had to withstand constant pounding of hammers to to print the bank notes. The bank reports are 180 columns. We have one the head. It was only 12 inches. For two hundred, you get like twenty inches off. So, in, in the, after a while, it would not round. So by making them shorter, it would be more solid, and you you would you would last taller. We got the pattern tight, and I got my name on that too. So my engineering degree was very helpful. Um, I was able to get back in engineering. I went back to Hughes of Company, and this is. Well, this is, we don't have a job for engineering today, but we can use your, your knowledge in purchasing. 
It's just we need uh, somebody that has knowledge of technical devices to go and fix problems with the suppliers when they, they have problems by meeting this, the quantities or the quality, the precision. They need somebody to go there and help them. So here I am. So I, the, the performance of the suppliers improved almost 100%. And uh, they um, they promote me. Every time I come up with a fantastic result, they promote me. They give me more money. And uh, I didn't want to be a manager. I didn't want to be involved in anything with people. Okay. As an engineer, I deal with my own people. We speak the same language. And uh, I was successful that way. And uh, for 37 years, I worked as, as an engineer, as a purchasing manager. So now I have experience of purchasing. I have purchased uh, experience in materials and processes. I have the uh, knowledge of the industry, know what the manufacturers will be good houses. So the efficiency of purchasing became a bit to do. Wow. Takes a bit. Nice. That's awesome. Wow. Um, well, Victor, we're going to get ready to wrap it up. Uh, and, but before I do, I always give everyone the opportunity for, you know, a, any last words you'd like to say? Well, I'd like to close with the fact that uh, my success has been because of two reasons. And I want to tell the world that volunteering is not a crime. The reason for my success is because everything that I accomplished in the Marine Corps, I volunteered for. Everything that I've done since I got out of the Marine Corps is because I volunteered to do it. I have the knowledge, use my knowledge. I have the, the strength and the power and the knowledge. I'm a good man. Yeah. And uh, that, that con concludes my presentation. And it's uh, short, sweet, and to the point. Thank you, sir. Thank you for being here. Uh, it's an honor to have you. Uh, and a pleasure. And I appreciate you taking a seat. Thank you, sir. Thank you. My, the thank you's all mine. Push it to the limit. I can't go no 